This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. Hello, and welcome to the AAOS Bone Beat Podcast on advocacy. I am honored to have Dr. Blake Kurd with us today. Dr. Kurd is an orthopedic surgeon who has been a part of the physician-owned hospital group since essentially its inception prior to being what it's known as today as the PHA. He has worked with the state Senate and the state legislature in South Dakota and has a very unique perspective on understanding how we talk to other people who may not be in medicine, who may not understand our day-to-day activities that we participate in as surgeons and as physicians. Dr. Kurt, it's wonderful to get to talk to you, and I appreciate your time today and look forward to our conversation. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's dive right into it. I think this physician-owned hospital concept, we probably need to put a little bit of history to it. And I know you've been with this since the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened with the original, we'll call it the Affordable Care Act legislation, where we had a section inserted that essentially stopped the way that we were doing things previously with regards to physician-owned hospitals? Sure. It actually goes back even further than that to the year 2000 during the Medicare Modernization Act under President Bush number 41, where there was a temporary pause on the construction of new physician-owned hospitals as part of that initiative. And they put us under the microscope at the federal level then and really stunted the growth of the industry, which is quite stunning when you think back in history, all hospitals at one point were actually owned by physicians, right? The physician-owned hospital was at one point the physician's house in this community in which they lived, and that's where they took care of patients. So physician ownership in hospitals is not a new concept. The Mayo Clinic certainly started by the Mayo Brothers, and there are many other examples of physicians starting and running hospitals. And quite honestly, as the knowledge about what was possible with respect to the delivery of quality and efficiency and the reduced costs that were available in facilities that were physician-led, physician-governed, and physician-owned became a known threat to the American Hospital Association, they worked very hard to try and remove us from the healthcare landscape. That was the first attempt. We couldn't build for several years. And then when all of the research showed that we were everything we said we were, we were able to start building again. And then in the Affordable Care Act passage in 2010, March 23rd, when we were actively watching the legislation, we were included in the ACA. And that stopped not only the development of new hospitals, but the ability of those of us that already existed to grow and expand. And we have been working ever since March 23rd, 2010, to correct that terrible injustice that was perpetrated on us by the federal government. What were the arguments that they had for why these physician-owned hospitals needed to stop growing, needed to stop being built? What was their thinking behind that? The arguments that they made were that we only took the most profitable patients to our hospitals, that we did not take care of our pro rata share of federally paid for patients, whether they be Medicare, Medicaid, retired railroad worker, et cetera, and that we were only in the business to increase the size of our bank account. And 
we showed over and over again that is not the case, that we take care of just the same, if not more, of people that are Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries. In fact, the federal government's own study shows that the net community benefit from a physician-owned hospital is greater than a nonprofit when you combine not only the charity care that is administered by either institution, but you add in the taxes paid by the physician-owned hospital and the net community benefit is actually much higher. So those are the major arguments. Also that we would engage in self-referral and that we would perform unnecessary surgery because there was a financial incentive to do so. And we have proven time and again that is not the case, that our indications for a surgery are at the very worst the same as an employed physician within a vertically integrated healthcare delivery system. And in many cases that our surgical indications are more strict and that our utilization of our hospital and our ancillary resources are actually lower than they are from an employed physician that might work in the same community. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So the hospital argument is that physicians will self-refer, but someone has to refer the patients to the hospital and ultimately do the surgery. And at the same time, at least now sitting here in 2023, more and more of our colleagues are becoming employed by vertically integrated systems. So my question is, is this whole concept of self-referral truly an issue given that whether we talk about a physician-owned hospital or a traditionally-owned hospital, there's significant opportunity that the physician is either owned or managed or in some way financially tied to the hospital, regardless of who the owner is. Well, that's exactly right. So, Adam, you're a spine surgeon. That's correct, isn't it? That's correct. So, if Dr. Brueggemann does 1,000 spinal fusions a year in a nonprofit hospital, Dr. Brueggemann is the greatest thing that hospital could ever hope to have its hands on. If Dr. Brueggemann does those exact same 1,000 cases in a facility that he has ownership in, somehow now you have transformed into someone whose ethics need to be questioned and you operate under the assumption that you're only working for your own benefit and not in the interest of your patient. So you're exactly right. The arguments are not congruent and it is really more about the nonprofit hospital system, and in some cases, the for-profit hospital segment of our healthcare delivery network in the U.S., having the ability to control where referrals go, to have say in how their physicians practice, and to be able to control more and more of the healthcare dollar that's spent on patient care. The fact of the matter is that physicians are compensated for providing care to patients. That's the nature of healthcare in the United States. We are not salaried physicians. There are incentives built in to the practice of orthopedic surgery, general surgery, primary care medicine to see patients and take care of them. That's how we make a living. We are also entrusted by our patients with great comfort in the Hippocratic Oath we take and that we will seek to do what's best for patients as our top priority. That should be the guiding principle for a physician regardless of where he's working. So you're correct. The environment really doesn't matter, except that if it's done within the confines of a physician's hospital, then the vertically integrated healthcare delivery system loses out on that revenue. And I might even add that all of us, all of our states have medical boards. And 
if a doctor did an unnecessary surgery, regardless of whether they did it at a hospital that they owned or a surgery center they owned, or if they did it at a hospital where they just work in their community, they are also held liable to that state medical board and that medical board could sanction them, correct? Well, without question, and it's actually more stringent than that, unnecessary surgery is a chargeable felony. It's assault. So there's not only a threat to your medical practice and your state licensure, but there is a real risk of criminal prosecution should you choose to engage in that kind of activity. And then the medical malpractice arena is a third prong for which physicians are at risk for engaging in unethical behavior. So there are already built-in guardrails. What I'm really interested in as well is this concept that physicians can own surgery centers. Am I right in saying that the ban in 2010 that was put into the Affordable Care Act does not extend to ambulatory surgery centers and physicians could operate at and own 100% of a surgery center and that is completely legal? That's 100% correct. And there are somewhere between five and 6,000 ambulatory surgical centers in the United States that perform far more procedures every year in the aggregate than is seen in the physician-owned hospital. There is no prohibition on what someone might do with respect to investment or ownership in an ambulatory surgical center, whether it be 100% physician-owned or, in many cases, the same hospitals that are lobbying Congress and are members of the American Hospital Association or members of the Federation of American Hospitals are, in fact, joint ventured with physicians in ambulatory surgical centers as partners. So the entire argument against physician hospitals is not congruent with how many of these large vertically integrated healthcare systems conduct their business on a day-to-day basis. So what you're saying is a hospital can employ a physician, a hospital can partner with a physician to own a facility that performs surgeries, just not overnight, or at least not more than 23 hours, depending on the state. And they can profit from owning a physician or employing a physician, and they can profit from partnering with a physician to do surgeries. But the concern would be that if a physician turned around and owned a facility in partnership with these same hospitals, suddenly things would go awry and people would perform unethical or illegal procedures? That's the argument that they make. And I'll take it one step further than that. Not only can these large systems own and employ a physician and or their practice, they own the surgical facility and they can own the payer, meaning they, many of them own their own insurance product. So they are making income off the premiums that they charge patients. They are then directing those same patients into facilities that they own and keeping the difference and then profiting off what they make on the facility side of the procedure, as well as some piece of profit off of the employment of the physician that they charge back to that particular physician. It appears to me that no matter where the procedure is done, there are perverse incentives to potentially do procedures that weren't necessary or do more procedures or, frankly, increase the cost of care. And isn't that the opposite of what we've seen in physician-owned hospitals? 
it is in fact exactly the opposite and it's a requirement now that hospitals post their prices although that can be a convoluted mess to try and work through as a patient we're doing a better job at a cheaper amount delivering high quality efficient healthcare in our community and when we are doing a better job at a lower cost it drives the level of healthcare up in the communities in which we reside and provides a level of competition that might not otherwise be there that helps somewhat contain the market. I want to touch on one part of that you said, and that is that the insurance companies are now starting to ask, how can we increase the competition? Because as consolidation occurs throughout the healthcare system, and in particular within hospitals and other facilities, it is becoming increasingly difficult for a health insurance provider to create a network without including the biggest facilities. And I probably once a year, if not twice a year, get an email from an insurance company and as well from the hospital system saying, we've come to an impasse and we cannot contract with each other. And I have to believe that the lack of competition is helping to drive some of the costs. I would think, you'd agree with me on this, that adding physician-owned hospitals into many of these markets would actually increase the competition and would give those insurance companies more room to negotiate because the smaller physician-owned hospitals traditionally are able to provide that competition in the market, which allows for the markets to basically normalize and not be so pushed in one direction by the largest organizations. Yeah, that's exactly right. The hospital industry, and I'm talking about the large vertically integrated systems here, have sold the illusion that consolidation under one roof would lead to decreased cost and better access through the efficiencies of one employer, if you will, one delivery system. And when that's been looked at in the markets in which it has occurred, the exact opposite has taken place. And Thankfully, the FTC is taking a much closer look at those kind of mergers, acquisitions, and consolidations. I think the federal government is finally starting to pay attention to this. They're paying attention to the favorable taxation status that the nonprofit hospital industry enjoys is not commensurate with the level of charity care that they provide. And I mentioned already the net community benefit that physician-owned hospitals provide I want to take us to 2023, and here we are. We have, for the first time that I'm aware of, a leadership package from one of the two major parties, that being the GOP Healthy Future Task Force, including many of the things that we're talking about today. And we have two bills that have been introduced, one in the Senate and one in the House, very early in session with significantly more sponsors than we've ever seen in any previous session. And it looks like we're going to have a markup of a physician-owned hospital bill in the House and the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce. So what do you think is different now, 2023, than what was going on through the last 13 years since the Affordable Care Act was passed? Number one, some of the great champions of our model of delivering healthcare have continued the battle on our behalf on Capitol Hill, and in many cases are in leadership positions where they're able to finally make a difference. A second component is that 
the claims that were made about why this needed to happen in 2010 over the last 13 years have cumulatively been proven to be false. And the data on that is becoming more clear and more overwhelming that the old arguments are just not valid anymore. And the third thing is that the claims that the cost of healthcare would be dramatically lowered by not allowing physician hospitals to be a part of the competitive landscape has also been proven not to be accurate. In rural areas, you're a former legislator in your state. For those who are listening who want to be more involved, how would they go about communicating with their current legislator? It's a great question. And what I tell our colleagues is that the relationships are important and you want to establish them before you need them. And in many states, there are still antiquated certificate of need laws that place significant restrictions on the ability of physicians to build surgical facilities and specifically ambulatory surgical centers. The Department of Justice has said that these laws are antiquated and anti-competitive and should be removed, but many states hang on to them because of pressure by the large vertically integrated healthcare systems. So establishing relationships at the state level to help affect change or things as now commonplace as ambulatory surgical centers is one area that's easier to get involved in. At the federal level, all of our elected representatives have offices in their home states and scheduling time with the member of Congress when they're home in the district is vital both for the Senate and for the House. They also all have people that are chiefs of staff for their state, and those individuals are readily accessible and much easier to take a meeting with. And then the most important thing, and what we found to be the most helpful, is to participate in legislative visits on Capitol Hill. The Physician-Led Healthcare Association has a fly-in where we make trips to D.C. and visit with our members of Congress from our representative states. Also, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, they are always looking for orthopedic surgeons to come and meet with members of Congress. It is much easier than people might anticipate. By your very appearance before an elected member, you are seated at tremendous credibility as a practicing surgeon or a practicing physician. Most of them are there because they want to do the right thing but they get bombarded with lobbyists that are trying to restrict our ability to do the things that we know are in best interests of our patients. So they need to hear the other side of the argument. And quite honestly, in most cases, they are very receptive to our visits and they want to hear from us. We've had some great conversation today. What are the takeaways, do you think, for those who are listening to this regarding physician-owned hospitals and where we are today and what we need to do going forward? I think the evidence is clear that physician-owned hospitals provide a terrific venue for healthcare delivery. They do so at a very competitive cost and with superior quality. They provide more net community benefit in the areas in which they reside than their nonprofit counterparts. And quite honestly, the time has come to take the shackles off the physician-owned hospital industry and let the true spirit of American enterprise, entrepreneurship, and innovation disruption really thrive in U.S. healthcare. For the last 20 years, we've been looked at, studied, and evaluated, and it is clear the evidence is irrefutable 
that we are an important piece of healthcare delivery and we are driving the conversation about quality care and reducing costs with more favorable outcomes. I think that's great. And what a wonderful summary. I really appreciate how you've been able to educate our listeners on what is going on in physician-owned hospitals. Really can't think of many people who could provide the depth and perspective that you do. I thank you for your effort and your energy in ensuring that our patients get the best possible care. And I look forward to talking to you and working side by side with you as we continue to fight this fight in Congress. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And anything I can do to help move the needle on this, I'm always happy to do. And I learned a long time ago when I first went to Washington, rule one, if you don't show up, you lose every time. I would leave with saying, I think Dr. Burgess said it best recently when he said, why is it that a hospital can own a doctor, but a doctor can't own a hospital? Well, thank you for listening today. We look forward to our next podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please make sure you subscribe so that you get the next one as we tackle the issues that face orthopedic surgeons and our patients as we advocate for them in both the state halls and federally on issues that matter to us in the musculoskeletal care arena. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission-Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.